Hello everyone, shall we start? Um, thanks for, for coming to today's talk on resilience, uh, even during the, the reading week. My name is Marco, I'm a third year PhD uh, candidate here at Warwick Space Department and part of the critical finance group who organized this event uh, today. So if you want to follow our other activities, please subscribe to the newsletter uh, on the sheet of paper that Luke will just pass around in a minute. Today we are very pleased to welcome John Morris uh, from the Faculty Research Center for Business in Society at Coventry University and James Bressett uh, from Warwick Space Department. And they will discuss the uh, emergence of the discourse of resilience in finance. Just to say a couple of things about what this is all about and how we uh, and how the you know the idea behind it. In September, the Warwick Critical Finance Group had a, a, a research, an early research workshop on new frontiers in the interdisciplinary study of finance here at Warwick. And during a conference break, we found out that both John and James are currently working on a book that looks at this, uh, among other things, uh, uh, both books look at discourses around resilience in finance and over a beer at Varsity, uh, we figured that putting the two in conversation would make... I don't think I was at that beer. Pardon? I don't think I was at that beer. <laughs> no, you weren't. Oh, we just, uh, it was, scheming, behind, it was you. scheming behind your back. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, we figured that this would make for a great talk, especially uh, since recent years have seen a proliferation of the resilience discourse in both policy and academia, yet the, the move of this discourse to, to finance um, yeah, this was less well covered and less well reflected. And resilience in, in finance typically focuses on the, on the rhetoric of stability in relation to economic shocks. So I want to highlight a couple of things. Um, in its 2013 meeting, uh, the World Economic Forum stated its agenda to foster, I quote, resilient dynamism in the global economy. Um, the Bank for International Settlements has sought to promote, uh, quote, the road to a more resilient banking sector, unquote. Ben Bernanke has called for the production of communities resilient to recessions. And, yeah, economists affiliated with the IMF and the World Bank can now be found comparing economies and regions on their capacity for resilience uh, to the next or any financial crisis. At the Bank of England, an institution whose actions both of today's speakers analyze at length uh, in, in the forthcoming books, the move towards resilience um, is particularly pronounced. The Bank of England's Financial Stability Committee has been joined by a dedicated financial resilience division. And Andrew Haldane, the bank's chief economist and executive director of monetary analysis and statistics, has emphasized the importance of a resilient financial system on countless occasions. Yet, before we zoom in on the discourse of resilience and how it has emerged uh, in the context of finance and debates around finance and what consequences it has and for whom, we, I'd like to first introduce our speakers uh, properly to you. So, John Morris is an economic geographer studying contemporary finance, economic life, risks and the media. 
His PhD at Durham University was supervised by Paul Langley and Ben Anderson and focused on the Bank of England's thinking on financial stability from the 1990s onwards. Articulating a Deleuzean cultural economy, the dissertation sought to understand documents, press conferences, credit derivatives, value at risk, and bank stress tests um, through the concepts of performativity, assemblage, and deterritorialization. During his PhD, he also won the Best Graduate Student Paper Award at the New Directions in International Political Economy Conference here at Warwick. And yeah, the paper was called A Cultural Economy Approach to Performativity in Central Banking. And he later turned that into an article for the Journal of Cultural Economy. Upon completion of his PhD, John moved to the UCL's Department of Science and Technology Studies as a research associate to continue his work on financial performativity and press conferences, as well as finance, security, and risk management. His recent research has looked at stress testing uh, with Nathan Coombs, and since October this year, he's research assistant at the, as I said, Faculty Research Center for Business and Society at County University, and he now works on issues of financial capability affordable lending and credit scoring. As mentioned, he is working on a monograph uh, which is entitled Securing Finance and Mobilizing Risk, Monetary, uh, Money Cultures at the Bank of England. And I think it will be out in 2018 with Routledge in the RIPE series in Global Political Economy. Have I forgotten anything? <laughs> that was the most exhaust exhaustive um, account of biography I've ever, I've, ever, I've ever had, so thank you very much. Welcome, John. <laughs> uh, most of you probably know James Bressett already as a reader in IPE here at Warwick, and I think still director of the uh, MA in IPE uh, at the Pace Department. He works on the politics of globalization with a focus on questions of ethics, governance, crises, and resistance. His first book is entitled Cosmopolitanism and Global Financial Reform, a Pragmatic Approach to the Tobin Text. He has edited seven journal special issues and has authored uh, and co-authored around 50 articles and book chapters that appeared in journals such as Alternatives, Democratizations, Ethics and International Affairs, uh, Global Society, International Political Sociology, <laughs> a very obvious. Name um, a channel. <laughs> yeah. So may, probably worth mentioning in the context of today's talks are three papers. Uh, one uh, which he co-authored with Chris Holmes, um, Building Resilient Finance, Uncertainty, Complexity and Resistance. Um, then there was another paper with Nick Wong-Williams on security and performative politics of resilience. And... In 2013, he has uh, uh, co-edited a special issue on security and the politics of resilience. Um, okay, he has won some prizes. I won't go through this. Um, maybe worth mentioning here is he's also co-editing iPeel.org, uh, a new trade website yeah. on, the, on IP, uh, the International Political Economy of Everyday Life. And as I mentioned before, he's currently writing on his book, Effective Politics of the Global Event, Trauma, and the Resilient Market Subject, which is uh, forthcoming with Routledge. Anything else you want to... Yeah. Just, just go to IPU, it's really good. Yeah. Go to <laughs> IPU.org. So, welcome, James. 
Um, so maybe as a first <coughs> question, uh, I'd be interested in how did you come to write about resilience in the context of those two books? So for me, I mean, it was something that I eventually came to as I progressed through the book, I guess. So um, I wanted to do something. I, it's taken me years to accept that I'm probably like a critical security and risk person. Um, yeah, there was a lot of internal resistance to that label, but I think, I think I'm probably there. Um, so I think about questions in terms of the relation between finance and security. Um, in the in the tradition of people like Marika Dehuda, Jackie Best, Paul Langley, uh, Emily Gilbert, Nina Boy, people like that. And I guess when I kept pushing through the material, you keep on coming back to this idea of capital and capitalization. So you can see that in liquidity lost by Langley straight away. And I think when you dig deeper into that and you start looking at what the Bank of England is saying about about capitalization, the word resilience comes up loads. Um, and I guess one of the key themes of the book then is that, um, so like Fabio Meneses' recent work with you know that that uh, very small volume with a lot of authors, um, the you know the capitalisation is a cultural process. So I think the book is sort of essentially it's about the development of thinking about risk at the Bank of England over over a 25 year period, and that's a combination of wanting to do something with some of the PhD material, but also as I did more and more work on stress testing and living in London and meeting a lot of people in London, um, I've picked up and found things that just screamed out that you can do something really interesting on that. So that's, that's basically where the manuscript came from. And then um, James, kind of, James and um, Andre Bloom helped me get that into a proposal. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so um, a, a, slightly, a slightly different direction to think about resilience and, and more uh, sort of accidental, never really knowing where a book project begins or ends. Um, I promise it ends now. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've been working around uh, the politics of the global event and had been proceeding around discourses of trauma and the performance of global events as shocking, catastrophic and so forth, specifically because I was interested in the way in which uh, market subjects were being mobilised as vulnerable, emotional, subject to damage, potentially subject to damage, and so on and so forth. Um, and I was thinking about events like 9-11, uh, the subprime crisis, and the Chilean mine disaster uh, initially in, in, that, in that way. But the scholars of trauma that I was reading uh, were increasingly citing uh, a turn to, to resilience, uh, specifically in psychology, uh, but also more broadly in security around contingency planning. And there's a sort of a, a quote, which I'm going to misquote from Martin Seligman, where he says, you know, the problem with trauma is we're telling people that after a disaster they have to become, or they will become traumatised, that there's something wrong with them, that they have PTSD, which is called a disorder. And what we need to be exploring is the notion that they could have resilient responses, that they could have post-traumatic growth and so forth. So that's how I came to it. But more broadly, I, I, was, I was interested in the way in which the resilience discourse kind of grabbed hold of this concept of the event and took it from being this kind of existential uncertainty, a contingency that might happen to you and might traumatise you, to this kind of a notion that the extreme event, it was a, it was a practical reality of complex systems that we kind of had to proactively uh, uh, adapt to and plan for. So, so uncertainty from being a sort of a conditional possibility to just being the reality that we need to write into our 
everyday life and, and, and I started to think about this resilient subject as a kind of an opposite to the traumatic subject, a reverse positive if you like and, and, and then beyond that I, I found that the discourse allowed me to articulate all of these broader questions I was interested in, in about how do we narrate crisis events uh, how, is, how is the event performed how, how, does, how does the performance of an event resonate with an everyday person on the street. How do they take it on board and respond and progress in its name? And it, it struck me that these were interesting discourses for getting at the, the effective components of those moments and stories. Um, yeah. Okay. Now maybe in terms of a, an attempt to come up with a definitional alignment of what resilience actually means because it, it is a term that is used in various disciplines, uh, ecology, epidemiology, security studies uh, uh, more recently, environmental politics, and yeah, finally finance. Um, as, as I've understood it, engi in engineering, resilience typically refers to the capacity of a certain material or certain materials to return to their former shape after pressure is applied to them. Um, but, yeah, then obviously the next question is, how do society or financial systems um, develop such coping strategies or the adaptability or yeah, the capacity to bounce back uh, uh, as opposed to just, you know, some materials or commodities? Um, and I think you both talk about two different versions of resilience in this respect i.e. one on more on a systemic or system-oriented level and one on an individual level. And I wondered if you could say something about that. Okay. Um, so I'll just kick in with the systemic level. So um, this is not going to come as a surprise to anyone who's read Melinda Cooper's work or Giselle Datz um, on... Uh, thinking about the financial system as a, as, a, as a complex adaptive system. And, you know, and this is something that, particularly if you're studying the Bank of England, um, the stuff that Haldane was saying, um, you know, straight after the crisis until, well, definitely up until about 2012, was, you know, that we need to start thinking about, um, yeah, the system as being this vast, this vast open-ended <coughs> system um, with uh, emergent properties and... I think what's interesting about that as well is that, for me, it, it, when you're thinking about governance, it puts you in an interesting epistemological position because you start saying that actually if something is a complex adaptive system, so it's like uh, the weather, then you can actually start predicting and you can actually start forecasting. So it almost it start, it puts you on the continuum of inductive reasoning in that sense that you have some kind of a base to go from and you build and you build upwards and I think as well you know if you think to Brett Christopher's works on work on complexity and derivatives and I um, talk a little bit about complexity in another chapter in terms of derivatives I think we could look at you know this this network of derivatives transactions also as a complex adaptive system and I think this is this is something that that's I guess where I come from from that and then with Melinda Cooper, we start talking about macroprudentialism and governance of a system rather than just microprudentialism and individual institutions. Can, can I just ask if, yeah. um, if uh, in looking at a system and seeking to do inductive math, do, do in your in your 
uh, extensive interviews you've done with the Bank of England, do you get a sense that they think they're part of the system? Or are they standing outside it in some way? I think, I think they have to be part of the system because they interact on and off the record. They interact with the financial system, uh, with financial actors. They're well aware that they are, um, you know, uh, Yusuf Vogel's term, that, you know, there is, a, there is a financial public and I guess they are, they do know that they influence it and in many ways I think they're quite careful about what they do say in interviews and statements because they're aware that they do interact and they are part of the system, I guess. Yeah, so uh, definition. Yeah, I mean, we're still talking about the systemic-oriented uh, definition. So I think, I think in, in your book... Chapter, okay, so, I mean, yeah. sorry to... Sorry. Yeah, no, um, no. So, I, there's lots of definitions of resilience. Um, and there... What, what's interesting for me is how, is how a complex genealogy of, of a term or a concept, um, uh, uh, where it comes from and where it goes to. I feel like the genealogy is kind of long and complicated, and I think it's continuing, um, is, is, is kind of the way I, I, I think about this. So there's no doubt that etymologically, like the, a lot is placed in this idea of uh, resilient, which is kind of the ability to bounce back, the, a kind of engineering notion that, 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 that something, uh, an object or a, or, a, or a material, that if you, if you press it or if it undergoes stress, that after that pressing or stress it will go back to its original state. And that's an idea which, which you know, is very popular in engineering. However, the systems idea of, of, of resilience, which I think that John, John is talking about, about complex adaptive systems, mm. comes from ecology. And I think ecology is a far more interesting way of thinking about resilience. If I had to say there's a definition I agree with, it probably comes from ecology, which is the notion of how do you, how do you look at a system, how does a system change over time, how does it respond to shocks and disturbances, and, and, and so that notion of adaptability comes in. And the reason, the reason I like it is, this will sound quite, quite dark, but uh, it, it's kind of quite happy about death. Um, and, I, and I sort of find a lot of ways of narrating political economy either, either don't want to talk about death, as if death just doesn't happen within market life, um, or, or they want to go over the top about death and, and go to the level of trauma. And sort of, you know, make the exception of death the, the sort of the, the focus. Whereas, for someone like Holling, um, in analysing initially ecological systems, death is just something that happens. Individuals die, population, populations die, and and systems move on. And so, the focus of ecological systems adaptation is about how the network adapts over time, not how it goes back to its original place, not how it goes back to the way it was, not how it repairs, but how it adapts over time. So, it's a quality which is, in a sense, emergent from systems. So, it's, in a way, it's almost a, a performative <laughs> way of, of thinking about uh, 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 systems and networks. Um, I did, did have something else. I thought about that subject, but I'm struggling to remember what it was. Um, <clears throat> okay, now, now, 
I don't, I don't have a definition of resilience, and I step back from it, and I think, so, and the, re the reason is because resilience is also a discourse that does things. And so someone like David Chandler, who I find very interesting on resilience, even if I find that at the crucial points I disagree quite fundamentally, um, he says what's interesting about resilience is it's this capacity as a postmodern signifier to, to bring all these things together. So it's not that bouncing back is wrong and systems adaptation is right. It's, it's the way in which resilience as a discourse of governance weaves uh, what, is, what is fundamentally a conversation about the li limits of predictive knowledge, the limits of our ability to control systems, the limits really of neoliberalism and modernity in resilience. Weave that with notions of strength, fortitude, kind of classical ideas of bravery and a resilient subject in that way, and bring that together. And I think he, he, I disagree slightly because I, I struggle to read back into I, classical ideas of bravery and fortitude, a notion of resilience. Uh, but, but, I, but I think he's onto something in the way that these different ideas within resilience float and co-perform and stuff. And a, a kind of a classic example is. Is, is from Radio 5 Live and its bounce-back ability. Um, and it's, it, I think it's pretty much related to Charlton Athletic and the ability <laughs> for Charlton Athletic, the defence, to withstand so many difficult games and bounce back and come back and so many injuries. And this is kind of spread through popular parlance as a kind of an everyday understanding of, bounce, of, of, of resilience. And, and often you see, hear a lot of discourses of resilience on match of the day. And, and, and I guess what I'm interested then is how these different meanings come in and come out within different situations. And that's, that's sort of the way I would think about the definition. Yeah. Right. And I think something that I've explored in the, in the chapter that, you, that Marco's seen is the idea that actually, I started off with the question of, you know, well, what side of the fence is the Bank of England on? And actually, when you look at this, more, the more publicly available stuff, um, the financial stability reports, the stuff on the internet, um, you get both, quite frankly. You get on one side and the other. And I guess for me, it's because I'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but we talk up so in financial risk government, you have this kind of idea that was very prevalent in the 90s, which is about micro-prudentialism, which is about the idea that individual institutions manage their own risk and don't look at anything else. It's very atomistic. Um, it used credit derivatives. It used value at risk. And that was micro-prudentialism. Baker's brilliant on this. Andrew Baker is the best person to read on this. And then, uh, and then you know... You, have, you go after the crisis to, again, thinking about systems, thinking about macro-prudentialism, thinking about how do we make a more resilient system. Um, and yet at the same time, with the way that certain things like stress testing are going, is they are trying to do two things. They do call it a package. They do say that we're trying to explore what might happen in the system in the future that's emergent, but we're also trying to see what's going on at the moment. Um, and... Um, you know, we are still interested in the capitalization of individual institutions. Mm. I heard an, anyone who was at a, a talk I was involved in on Friday heard this phrase, the capital Taliban, uh, which I hadn't heard before, but apparently that was used about, about the Bank of England. And we had an ex-Bank of England guy who was very unhappy about this and gave point by point why this is not a very good description of their attitude towards things. Um, yeah, it didn't bother him at all. Um, but, you know, but um, yeah, so I think... It's interesting that, you know, James says that we have these coexisting, co-performing things, and that's certainly my experience of it from what I've been studying as well. Mm -hmm. So if we zoom out again uh, from this 
system-oriented discourse and look more at resilience on the individual level, and this is certainly what the governmentality literature talks more about uh, uh, when they talk about resilience. So th there is kind of this psychological discourse of the subject, of the resilient subject, um, and the idea there is um, that you can il inculcate uh, desirable character traits in individuals so that they can better manage the psychological effects of trauma uh, after extreme events. And then in the governmentality literature, literature there's also uh, this idea that the neoliberal subject uh, takes steps in managing their own risks uh, uh, in view of excessive uh, state intervention. So topics like financial literacy, education, that you know, the idea there basically is that individuals can become more resilient to crises uh, if they build up skill, skills and the confidence to become more aware of financial risks and, and the ability to deal uh, uh, with risks. And this has typically like two consequences, namely that extreme events such as disasters and crises are allowed to happen, and that it's you know uh, uh, that, that the individuals just have to uh, develop the abilities to, to to cope with that. And then on the other hand, uh, uh, um, an alleged retreat from uh, public responsibility for welfare. What do you make of that? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to hear about John's notion of allowing things to happen. Okay. Yeah. So I take the notion from the first couple of lectures of Foucault's Territory Security Population, um, which is a fundamental text for me in the way that I do things. And it is that sense that for him, for Foucault, a mechanism of security is, um, it, is about, it is about not shutting things down. It's about circulating the risky alongside the safe. It's about this, you know, things going on, an infinite series of, of events happening in the future, and so you have to use uh, probabilistic forecasting rather than actually tracking everything. And yeah, you allow things to happen. So, And this will relate particularly to the Bank of England about how they have consistently and explicitly said over the years that we are not creating a system in which institutions cannot fail. They say that would be bad. The Bank of England got hammered over... in. in you may have seen this uh, a couple of like two months ago. There was a lot of stuff about you know the ten-year anniversary of the bank run on Northern Rock, and the bank was hammered then and has been hammered now about how they handled that because they kept on changing their position over a course of a couple of days. But one of the first things that Mervyn King said, who was the governor at the time, was that um, we cannot. We're not going to bail out because we cannot allow moral hazard. We cannot allow a situation in which banks know they're going to be bailed out. Um, it's arguable whether we've actually got away from that. But you know, we cannot have a system where banks will take excessive risk because they know that they're going to be bailed out. And so in some ways, as far as the Bank of England's concerned, it is a disciplinary mechanism on banks to rein in risk-taking. But it's also, it's also a sense of, okay, well, if this is going to happen, then financial institutions need to have a certain level of financial health so that when there are shocks, they can bounce back or they can adapt. And you know, so you could look at it in either two ways, of the, two ways of it. But I had a sort of open question, so sort of stimulated by this, which is, um, 
I'm trying to place behavioural finance in between this psychological individual level and the governmentality security approach because I think you can argue either way. I'm just interested to hear what people say and I'm, I'm mindful that um, audience participation would be great because we just don't want to um, to white guys talking about Foucault. So um, if we, you know, so yeah, if anyone has any thoughts on this, it would be great. But um, so it's this idea in behavioural finance. So we've been running... Um, we've been doing uh, Coventry. We've been doing some work with the Money Advice Service, which is a wing of the British government, and it's essentially to help people who are feeling squeezed or are struggling with their personal finances or household finances. And we're running these uh, money advice workshops. And one of the sort of one of the one of the things that we're trying to get people to think about is how much would you need to have in order to survive, say, your washing machine breaking down or your car breaking down or someone in the family is off work for a month because they're, I don't know, they're, they're say they work on a construction site and they're just paid by what they do and they're off work for a, a month because they have a broken, broken hand or something. Um, so that kind of comes in on that sense. But I think it also speaks to, you know, that, that, that aspect of, you know, the, the idea that extreme, you know, you can allow extreme events to happen and you can survive. So I just wondered where people saw sort of the behavioural governance kind of response to whether that's a whether that's a, a governmental or whether it is that more individual psychological because I, I suspect it's both but I'm just I've been thinking about this the last couple of days and it's it's something that I've not got a clear answer on obviously. Yeah. I mean yeah a lot of my a lot of my answers are, are sort of along the same line. It sort of depends where you stand. Um, so I, I mean, I think you've given quite a nice, a nice rendition of, of the possibilities of, of this thing of, of allowing events to happen. I think there is a very critical and there is a very kind of disciplinary notion of, of governmentality around around this, which is which is oddly reflected both in neoliberal governmentality and increasingly around Marxist accounts of, of financialization. So if you were to take a, a typically old school structural Marxist approach in the vein of, say, Chris Clark's work on financial education, you would say that uh, resilience is simply about training people to become aware of their limits and aware of the difficulties and realities of life through failure. So you, you let a child fail in school several times and eventually they learn and they come back from it. It's a form of of resilience. So resilience on this view is about toughening people up. So don't get traumatised. Get resilient. Adapt to be strong, find ways, find coping mechanisms and so on and so forth. Now, obviously a lot could be very positive in that about uh, learning to find supportive networks, learning to understand other people who are in problems and so forth. So I'm not, I'm not down on resilience per se, but there is this kind of critical idea <clears throat> about resilience which which maps onto really the movement of positive psychology and positive thinking, um, which is a positive thinking as a, as a kind of an ideology. Positive thinking can lead to better jobs, better salary, better work-life balance, better dealing with the, the personal issues that you're, mm -hmm. you were raising about mm -hmm. what happens when your, your um, washing machine breaks down, which sends me into a personal panic. Um, and, and, and advocates of this cognitive 
mastering of emotion suggests that the market subject is actually empowered to change and manage their situation. So in this sense, resilience reflects something that you could typify as going on in America uh, and more latterly in the UK about the possibility of subjects finding ways to think positively about difficult situations. So happiness instead of wealth, depression instead of unemployment, stress instead of overwork, <laughs> uh, Will, as, as Will Davies quips, unhappiness has become the critical negative externality of contemporary capitalism. So I think this, this speaks to this idea that resilience is about acculturating individuals to uncertainty, instability and crisis that is capitalism, but, but putting the responsibility or responsabilising them. So in terms of your, your wider reflection, I think I'm critical of, 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 of both accounts, both, mm. both for positive thinking but also mm. against the disciplinary dimensions because both seem to downplay the performative agency of subjects in relation to these new structures and practices. Both seem to downplay the amount of agency that's inculcated in resilience approaches. Again, Chandler is very kind of clear and open on this. The resilient subject is the opposite of docile. The resilient subject is proactive, taking things on, inventing their own life. Very close to the self-making subject that Foucault would have identified with, in a positive way, I think. Uh, or a self-creating self, self subject. Um, and so in this sense, I think there's an instability at this level. It, it's, it's potentially possible to read them as both, but, 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 but perhaps listen to the subjects more and, and see what they're saying about these situations. It's possible to refuse therapy. It's possible to laugh at these situations. It's possible to resist them and do things differently. There's a knob there of how do you view the nudges, right? How do you see them? Do, you know these behavioural scientists talk about situational cues and how we can you know, work with uh, biases that people have in a way that guides them towards behaviour that we want to promote and yeah this is something I've been, I've been thinking about for a couple of months really in terms of when we started doing this was you know, what is this, is this disciplinary and if it is disciplinary in what way is it disciplinary and I guess it's how do you view the nudge, is it enabling I mean something that we've been doing in these money advice workshops is saying to people what is it that you want to spend your money on? And that can be anything, and we do an activity where people talk about these things and we get, we get people saying, oh, I'd really like to do it in my kitchen. We get people who say, I'd really like to go on holiday. Um, I'd really like to buy a second house so that the kids can live in it, all those kind of things. <laughs> um, you know, they're on, on the same street, but not in our house, basically, <laughs> is, the, is, the, is, is the kind of thing there. But, um, but what you have there is that sense of, saying, okay, we're doing budgeting, and we're, saying, we're not saying cut everything, we're saying decide what it is that you're actually going to spend your money on and spend it on something you want to, rather than a, you know, all right, but not particularly remarkable coffee every day from, from Starbucks or something, you know. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the way that this stuff is working through budgeting, which, again, you could argue that budgeting, and I think if we go back to sort of the earlier stuff that Langley did, budgeting is quite in that disciplinary governmental type, mm -hmm. type activity, so... Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's really having a look at these interventions and saying, well, what is the dynamic that's going on there and where is the agency? Mm -hmm. But, yeah. What I find interesting is that you both look at the Bank of England's statements about resilience, but we, you draw very 
different conclusions. Uh, uh, so probably because John looks harder than I do. Yeah. <laughs> well, James is I, much more optimistic than me. I think is another key point. So maybe just what you know, what's the Bank of England's conceptualization of resilience? So we have already touched upon this a bit, but maybe you could uh, elucidate, John, what the relationship is they uh, see between capital and the capital structure of banks and their resilience. Yeah, okay. So I've talked about Northern Rock and I've talked about moral hazard, and I think those are really interesting and important things to think about when you get the Bank of England discourse about intervening in the financial system. Now, we have the sense that it is okay for institutions to fail, but I think in the sense that you allow things to happen, again, you know, taking this idea of security as a mechanism that, 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 that does this and promotes circulation. And I think what has become to the forefront of regulatory thought is that it's not okay for certain institutions to fail. So certain institutions need to be ring-fenced. Systemically important institutions need to be ring-fenced. And, um, and if things go badly, they can be separated out as different legal entities. So I think that's kind of, kind of one thing that I would say about, about the banks thinking on that. But a second one would be, um, what's the relationship between capital and capital structure of banks and resilience? So when I talk about better capitalised banks, we're not talking about having loads and loads of, of money and gold stashed away in the vaults. We're talking about regulatory capital. So we're talking about the ratio of um, equity, which is really good quality capital. It's, it's shareholder, um, shareholder capital, it's stock. And the ratio of that to risk-weighted assets. And there's a lot of politics of the technicalities of, of those risk weightings. And that's where some interesting work could be done and has been done, I think. But it could be very critical when we think about the politics of technicality in finance. But... It's about saying how much of this good quality capital would an institution have in order to, you know, withstand balance sheet shocks. And this is absolutely crucial within a system in which you allow things to happen. Because as a regulator, you can say, we'll allow banks to fail, we believe in moral hazard, we want banks to be disciplined by the fact that they're not going to be bailed out. But you've almost got an insurance policy there that you have better capitalised system, and the bank, you know, Carney saying, you know, we're a lot more resilient, uh, Mark Carney saying we're a lot more resilient than, 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 than the system was um, 10 years ago. It's, you know, we've got 10 times the amount of capitalisation. Other people like John Vickers said this isn't enough, and this is another controversy. But that's the general sense of, you can sit back a bit, I think, I'm not saying that's what they're doing, but I'm saying that it puts you in a much better position if you can say about moral hazard and market discipline, but you've also set up a market in a sense that is, is better capitalised, I guess. Mm -hmm. So do you think it's worth? I think we're in a better place than we were 10 years ago. I'm, I would say that. I would say that we're never going to know what the next thing, what the next thing is. Um, people are increasingly worried about political instability and what, how that is a risk to financial stability. The bank is also talking about cyber security. It's also talking about um, climate change. And they've got this great phrase called climate Minsky moments. Um, it's, it's really interesting. Um, there are some people like, I think Nick Taylor's working on this stuff at Goldsmiths, actually. Um, but, but, you know, I think 
the bank is explicit that they're not going to prevent the next fi financial crisis. Mm -hmm. But you can be in a situation where actually banks are doing things better internally in terms of how they function as, as organisations. And I think you can have an improvement in how regulators are actually trying to, as I call it in the book, look at risk through the microscope, so drill down, see what's going on, map things, code things, um, really have a much more comprehensive picture of what's going on with the mobilization of risk in finance, mm. so, that there are, so that there isn't this you know, concentration as Engelin and Engelin and his co-authors in The Great Complacence talk about, where you have this concentration of risk at particular points rather than a dispersal of risk, and you have this this sense that that actually they've widened the imagination, so they are considering more things as risks, and I think that's, that has to be a better thing. It's not. I don't think that, I don't think there is an answer to say that it has worked because clearly there will be another crisis. Um, people are already doing a countdown, I think, but you know that's. I think, James, you, you don't really talk about leverage ratios at length, uh, at length when you discuss the Bank of England's conceptualization of resilience. So, Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean I, I'm kind of intrigued that John's gone down the stress testing route and, and, and I think it's a very interesting argument. I, I sort of largely support it. I think in terms of resilience, yeah, yeah what you call widening the, the risk imagination I, I would sort of say, well, that's that's kind of implicit in the discourse of resilience. Yeah, you've, yeah, I've which, heard that. Which, um, which sort of has a lot a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> if, I can, if I can put it in very, which I say is more about it. I am in, fascinated by in, in broad terms. So, I mean, I think I think in broad terms, the discourse of resilience of the Bank of England is being drawn upon to marry to manage two two slightly different things. And I think the context for the emergence of resilience at the Bank of England is and has to be foregrounded the subprime crisis, mm. the global financial crisis, mm. and the politicisation of finance through that event. And I think that, that to me, is how a lot of the discursive innovation that's going on Makes sense. So, so on the one hand, the bank the bank still wants to be boring, and yeah. it still wants to do macro prudential stuff. It still wants to do debt ratios. It still wants to do light touch regulation to, to to foster market discipline. And so we go from from uh, twenty five to one to nineteen to one or something. Mm. Yeah. I'm not, not up on it like you are. But on the other hand, the the Bank of England, I think, in the last. Is it ten years? Yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it kind of wants to be funky, and it kind of wants to send a message that it gets it and that it understands, and that you know something did go fundamentally wrong in the politics of finance, and and bankers, you know, uh, uh, were out of touch with the social costs of their of their activities, um, and so I think there's been a there's there's a number of statements within. Uh, Haldane's work, but, but also within Incarnate's work, that kind of acknowledge these elements of the, the discourse of, of the public sphere of finance, as I, as I would think of it, um, um, in terms of acknowledging that finance is hierarchical, acknowledging that there's class, <laughs> acknowledging that um, uh, uh, 
we need to go beyond too big to fail um, in that way. So, so it begins to change its style um, uh, to embrace uh, a form of public reason, you know, to message through the public sphere, through, through publishing uh, all of its uh, statements and so forth, through the, the heavy mediatisation of, of, the, of, the, of the press conferences, but also through things like forward guidance, um, I, I understand also that the, the Bank of England now goes on on road shows. Mm. It's, 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 it's well, how dang does? It's endorsed and used uh, kind of uh, the same cartoonist who worked with Slavoj Zizek on some on some of his stuff, the RSA, to present this kind of public notion of what the financial public sphere is. So it's doing these these kind of funky things. And on the way to doing this, I simply think that different, weird, radical ideas within resilience, and I am quite sympathetic to some of Haldane's arguments, they, they kind of leak out in an uncontrollable way, and every now and then Carney will slap him on the wrist, but he, he, it's kind of out there now, and it, 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 it keeps going. And for me, this is about a wider sphere of politics and politicisation, or democratisation of, of finance, um, which... <clears throat> allows for other forms of politicisation, I would argue resistance, for new actors and voices that can be heard uh, and indeed be seen to be relevant. So the, the whole kind of movement towards disruption and challenger banks and, and, and alternative finance, which used to be radical and is now the new normal. Now, I, I mean, I, I look at it that way, and I think you're right, in a very positive way, as in how can we catch hold of this discursive changes and perform them differently, I think others would say that this is just a gap between rhetoric and reality. Mm -hmm. um, but but I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. Can I come back on that? So, um, so I, I went to the first uh, Bank of England public forum at the bank and they admit that it was an experiment and they were starting to deal with, and this must have been in 20... 2016, early 2016, maybe late 2015, early 2016, um, and yeah, probably before, yeah, I think it was November, so probably November 2015, and um, it was still a very, what I called at the time, managed transparency, so it was, there were certain things, like, you could ask questions, but you had to, they all gave you iPads, and you had to, like, write your questions and send them in, and they picked the ones which they were going to answer in the forums and put to the guests and, and that kind of thing. Um, so, for me, I think there's limitations to that level of the public, the public sphere stuff. Again, with getting the bank and bank staff to sign off things they've said in interviews, generally they've been really good and pretty open, but... There is a reticence by Bank of England staff to actively criticise what the bank did in the past. Mm -hmm. So while in public they will admonish the financial system and they will admonish banks, perhaps not naming them individual institutions, mm -hmm. but there is still a reticence because they're employees by this institution of this institution. So there is a reticence to be on record or, or to have it out there that they're criticising maybe things that were done. And the second thing, uh, thing, just to flip back onto what you said about the subprime crisis and the politicisation of finance, I think this is a central part of, for me, performative politics and what I talk about in the book, which is that, for me, the subprime crisis illustrated two significant misfires. 
that's to do with security and that they aren't in indirectly, I guess, to do with resilience, I guess, but they're to do with finance and security and these things together, which is one is about this idea that we can diversify risk through a system. So, and here I draw on, on, on Matt's work on functional mobility, and I talk about the way in which you can use financial instruments to diversify risk, and as I said earlier, or as I referenced earlier, England et al. say that actually this stuff was concentrated rather than dispersed. So you have counter-performativity. You have a financial model producing the opposite of what it's supposed to do. And I argue that value at risk does the same thing by assuming that events will be normal and like 95% of times in the, in the past. And actually, we're in that fat tail. We're in the 0.5% where things go wrong. And I argue that those are two important misfires give you insecurity rather than security. And here I like what Calon says about misfires. He says it in the Journal of Cultural Economy piece. He says that misfires happen all the time, and this is where politics is. And I think something that I don't tease out enough in the book, but I think is something that, that we do need to talk about there, is the two sides of politics there. When misfires happen, generally, there's this sense of either we see operations of power, and we see a status quo being retained, and this is what Erin Lockwood says in her uh, right piece on value at risk, which I think is a fantastic piece of work. And then you have this idea that actually the stuff that I'm perhaps talking about where we see, we see significant change or we see cultural change, we see change, we see this attempt to, to better understand where risk is in the system, the functional mobility, and we, we try and broaden our horizons about what we count as potential risks and what we need to guard against. So I think, I think yeah, I think follow, you know, using misfire and talking about, well, what is the politics there? And we can do it both ways, basically. Mm -hmm. We can see those operations of power and we can see change. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to say when a misfire will be one or the other. That's contingent. And I think that's where, where you would bring in, I don't know, but I guess this is... This is kind of a, a bit where you could then say, okay, well, this is where agency lies. Mm -hmm. Or structuration, I guess, or structuring, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But you, I, I mean, you seem to be saying that um, because it misfires, the Bank of England now emphasizes, oh, is well aware of those performative misfires and focuses therefore more on, on transparency requirements and kind of, you know, the solutions we already know uh, um, and you seem to make the argument this is then again more about discipline and less about this sense of systemic resilience that they foreground maybe more in the speeches. Yeah, so that's what I found when thinking about the way in which the bank... So in the, in the stuff I talk about, capitalization and resilience, um, I th there's someone from the bank who says a couple of times that capital is about it's the confidence-inspiring and loss-absorbing stuff. Mm. So this is this plays a crucial role in a system that allows things to happen because you have capital that absorbs losses and does all this and does all this stuff. Um, but then when you look at instances in which the bank says, well, we don't really understand this relationship between capital and confidence or loss-absorbing particularly well, there tended to be a shift towards we need transparency. And this is, just some, this is an empirical finding. I don't really have a theoretical lens for this, I guess. It's just an empirical finding that, that, that there was that shift towards we need to have transparency and uh, release of data and, 
and, and that kind of thing. And I guess there are, two, there are two issues with that. One is the conceptual stuff about transparency, which Jackie Best talked about a long time ago, which is that, which is that stuff to do with, well, theoretically, there are ambiguities that throw up the problem with the IMF wanting, wanting transparent um, financial systems. But then there's the practical side, which the Bank of England is aware of. You know, they're aware that already there is off-balance sheet stuff going on. Sam Woods did a speech in the summer. Sam Wood did a speech in the summer um, where he talks about this, and they say that we're going to. Then they say that they're going to get tough on on the financial institution on the institutions that do this. Now, whether they will or not, I don't know, but they are aware of the limitations of that approach. I think it's just where do they go? I guess is there. Mm -hmm. I think your point is different, right? Mm -hmm. You say that because a complex world necessi necessitates somehow a, a self-making or adaptive subject, this exceeds forms of agency that, you know, that, that, that would probably conform with, with governmental or, or neoliberal expectations. Mm -hmm. So actually the, the move towards the other side, mm -hmm. not back to more transparency and kind of disciplining institutions, uh, uh, but to open, open it up a bit and, and kind of unknown, uh, you know, forms of agency and, 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 and responses to, to, to problems or crises that we haven't seen before. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I was sort of, I was listening to John, I, I sort of largely, largely agree. I can't, I can't work out if I, if I, as a result, am becoming more, uh, it's possible that I'm becoming more, uh, um, invested in the idea that resilience is perhaps as radical as some of its content might suggest. Um, and, and so in this I, I'm sort of, I'm sort of, again, slightly influenced by Chandler who says that uh, one of the issues with um, equating resilience with neoliberalism is it, is it, it seems to radically underestimate how much resilience stands as a critique of, of neoliberalism. Um, you know, faith in the interactive outcomes of markets. You know, faith in a particular form of knowledge, of, I would say a predictive knowledge, but, but uh, we might have to talk, talk about that. Um, and, and, and furthermore, how resilience stands in, in contradistinction from actually existing neoliberal forms of governance, which are a long way from what neoliberalism would hope it would be, where you have top-down, light-touch, market discipline, regulation, designed to produce a certain form of status quo, which any form of critical political economist would point to the layers of <laughs> social and structural hierarchies that allow that to, to, to persist. And so the way in which I think about performative failure might actually be to say the way in which resilience is reconciled with, or the discourse of resilience is reconciled with neoliberal practices of financial governance is in part the failure that, that we need to be attuned to. And, and, and actually what I'm more interested in, as you say, is that you said I was perlocutioning. I wasn't sure if that was an insult. But, um, <laughs> it's, 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 the, it's the extent to which the conjuring or the, the hailing of particular subjects and forms and relations 
um, uh, can lead to different things. So this is so. So when I think about a politics of finance, I think about a politics of the financial public sphere, mm. which is a slightly different. To you were talking about Kalona, I think on, yeah, on misfires. As this yeah. is the moment of politics, which I don't disagree with. I'm just interested in how how a wider public sphere opens up, and so. When someone like Haldane does work with social finance, and when he, he responds to the Occupy movement and says what we need is local banking, and when he says the problem with finance has been, or financial regulation has been our focus on diversification instead of diversity, as in the diversity of different agents that it's possible to have within financial governance, I think he anticipates a mood of more radical, critical resistance, more radical changes that are possible and perhaps emergent within contemporary, uh, I would say, British finance, which is uh, the move to uh, engage a public that is far more aware about finance, far more aware of the, the hierarchies implicit in an interest rate change, <laughs> far, far more you know, cognizant, albeit you know, in a slightly mad and misdirectioned way and you know, pro-Brexit and whatever you want to to say it, but within that milieu, if that's the right way of pronouncing that word, within that are you, milieu... Are you seeing, are you seeing my Foucault and raising me? <laughs> within that milieu, um, I, I'm very much drawn to, as, a, as, I, as I think I've argued in the paper you mentioned, um, the, um, the, the, the Channel 4 uh, documentary uh, about Dave Fishwick. Is that Bank uh, of Dave? Bank of Dave, yeah. um, in terms of uh, his ability to mobilise an inclusive, a visceral, a charismatic, probably quite a romantic image of, of local banking. And, and to be honest, I'm interested in that probably because it's not interesting. We've known about local banking forever. <laughs> you know, the idea of a romantic image of local banking goes back to It's a Wonderful Life. But the fact that Dave is able to mobilise this within a public sphere that is more open to the idea of issues with hierarchy and the importance of diversity, I think he does some really important things to a national everyday audience. Um, he highlights the difficulty of setting up a bank. Yeah? You have to embrace risk at quite high levels, at quite high levels of capitalisation in order to have the name risk. I think before the last... before. When the documentary was made, there hadn't been a new bank in the UK signed off on for around 100 years? Yeah, it was something like that. Yeah. Around 100 years. He wasn't allowed to call his bank a bank because he didn't want to engage in the levels of, of risk diversification and, and, regulation, yeah. and regulation and capital adequacy that, that, that was being put on him. He simply... Uh, wanted to do it in a non-risky way <laughs> and in a, a non-profit way and so he wasn't allowed to take the title bank and actually he had to call his bank Bank on Dave and all sorts of sort of fun and interesting ways to understand about alternatives to finance. He didn't want to credit score people. He didn't want to credit score his customers. He wanted to meet them and talk to them and see about their plans and so forth. And okay, I fully accept that this is an instance, a romantic instance, um, and, you know, Dave's a rich man, and <laughs> the documentary did a very good job of portraying him as this down-to-earth guy I by talking that. about his, his, his DJing in Ibiza and so forth. <laughs> um, but, 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 but I think what, for me, is interesting about this, um, 
is the capacity to weave a narrative against, or rather through the discourse of financial regulation in post-event and post-crisis Britain. Both the method, local banking, and the form, a documentary televised on national TV, work to contest the terms of financial resilience, not by ignoring the deus ex machina of the, of the global event, but by politicising it, you know, and saying the bankers are shit, they shit on us. You know, very straightforward, go at the event and say things need to change. Thus the event in Dave, I think, is, it's neither determinate nor meaningless, but performative of politics and agency in, in a way which I, I find proliferative and productive of, 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 new, of new interesting things. So I think if I'm perlocutionary, I'm happy to be perlocutionary. <laughs> no, and, I, no and, actually, and actually, I'm completely... Um, I think, and a question I had for you <laughs> actually was, um, is failure and trauma for you the corollary of how I use Misfire, which is very dynamic, you know, in the, in the JCE piece, I talk about how these things actually we need to rehabilitate the, the, thought, the, the kind of the, the discourse around failure and misfire and performative failure. And actually, these are really exciting, and these can be really exciting and dynamic points for change. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think yeah. we're both talking to that. I'm talking about it in a very restricted institutional environment. And I think you have, and you always ask me at presentations about, you know, where does the where does the public sphere end and where does this stuff end? And I never really have a good answer for, for you on that because I don't think it does end. Um, and I think there are so many instances that you can come up with that talk about this public sphere. So I think, obviously, you have to talk about them differently in terms of institution and, and wider public. Um, but I think there's a kernel to both of them, I think, that actually are quite interesting for, for politics. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I think I think that is just a different focus. I just am forever amazed that that people can theorise a system without really wanting to take part in it. And I, th I think that's where I think that the the theorisation of financial resilience at the Bank of England um, starts to deconstruct itself, and and it and you could easily make the rhetoric reality argument. Well, there's there's interesting point. Well, interesting um, for sort of stress testing geeks, I guess, is that. Um, so the Bank of England has a very different way of doing... So stress tests, we have this hypothetical set of shocks to the financial system. They are projected onto a bank's balance sheet and all its exposures and its assets and liabilities. And then they say, how much regulatory capital do you have at the end? And they also say, how did you do the test? Can we look at your methodology? Can we see that we're confident that you as a bank can deal with this stuff when it comes up? What are your governance procedures like? Mm. Um, but... The Bank of England works with the assumption that when it does the stress test that there will be capital management by the banks during a crisis mm. and that there will be action in, in, from the regulator, I think. Um, and, whereas, and they're very critical of the EBA, the European Banking Authority, which when they do their stress test, now they have some, they have some, some uh, extreme constraints. They have a lot less staff than the Bank of England and a huge amount less than the Federal Reserve. Um, and they also have to do something that fits across 27 countries. And they have an assumption that the balance sheet is fixed during the crisis. So there's no... The banks aren't doing anything during the crisis. Mm -hmm. and, and 
that is criticised quite heavily by people in other regulatory institutions and mm. people in finance, that it's just something that does it actually tell you something in that sense that you know you are you are pretending that you're not in that it's not in the system and that this stuff isn't happening mm -hmm. and I think that's exactly the mm -hmm. I think that's exactly the kind of that that, yeah. that technical example I think illustrates that illustrates that point yeah we have about 20 minutes maybe uh, take some questions from from the audience if there are any yeah, yeah there's at least yeah. one please Leo hi um, Right, this is totally not my area, so forgive my forgive my potential ignorance in this uh, in this thing. I just I just wonder if is this is is the focus on uh, is the focus on narrative here limiting to the extent that it actually uh, diverts our attention away from financial practice? Uh, and I'm right. What do I mean by this? I mean. Um, I think there's a reason why this whole discourse of complexity has come up in science in particular years, and it's not only to the rise of complexity thinking more generally, it's generally it's because there's been a proliferation of markets. Um, the, the complexity of financial markets has increased massively, you know, the, the great rise in derivative markets and the markets for more complex um, financial products, and this has actually introduced a whole new set of dynamics into into financial markets. Shouldn't shouldn't we perhaps take more seriously the idea that um, financial markets are complex and use that as a way in kind of being critical about finance and use that as a point for intervention to say, well, do we actually what do we think about these super hyper complex financial markets? You know, is there is there not an argument to be made there for increased regulation? You know, what and, and the role of markets more broadly in society? I worry that if by focusing on like these narrative aspects, um, we may be we we might lose sight of some of these bigger questions. Yeah, about what's the role of markets in uh, what should be the role of markets in society? Because it seems to me that the current model of finance fits into this kind of uh, very economistic way of thinking based on kind of paradigma of general equilibrium, this idea that if there's a market for everything, mm -hmm. this is a sort of op optimal outcome. Is that is that the kind of model of society that we want? And if we're doing critical finance work, shouldn't we approach um, questions of complexity and resilience, thinking through how perhaps we can challenge that way of thinking. I mean, and politically, to me, it seems that this whole the, the fact that we kind that we might be accepting um, of this discourse of complexity uh, it says perhaps. Perhaps it's giving too much leeway to what's actually fundamentally a very neoliberal way of um, thinking about the role of the markets. Uh, okay, I've spoken. Shall we maybe take one or two shorter questions more and then can respond? Lorenzo yeah. and then Matt. Um, I was going to go back to the point John was mentioning about the project going on at Coventry University, where mentioned how. Um, 
through this project where they try and help out people with financial difficulties to take better like, sound financial decisions. Is that correct? Um, we're finding out what people want to do with their money and trying to suggest little things they can do that perhaps get them and, along and the way to that. mentioning the whole um, scholarship in behavioral finance, right, which, you know, portrays a really interesting dichotomy between um, investors acting sentimentally and investors acting rationally, mm. whereby, you know, they, they, they acknowledge that investors you know, sometimes can be influenced by emotions and therefore they're going to take bad financial decisions. But there is an archetype of a rational investor that should all investors behave like that. You would have more correct prices being inferred into stocks and things like that. And so I wonder, do you think there is an element within that kind of project happening in commentary whereby through this notion of resilience trying to make individuals as far away as possible from the sentimental kind of investors that doesn't it's not investing right because it's not, it's behaving according to emotion and therefore pushing them instead into a much more rational way of investing whatever money they've got at their disposal because that's what's going to make them resilient to, you know, a very weak economic uh, situation they find themselves in. Because you were mentioning, you were relating all of that to behavioral finance, weren't you? Yeah. And so do you think there's this element of trying to shift people from acting sentimentally to acting rationally because that's what's going to Thank you. Always known for my short questions. <laughs> um, John James, I, I really enjoyed this. Thank you. It's really nice just to be able to sit and listen uh, for a change. Uh, I love the format as well. Um, so I don't know whether you do lots of things. Uh, uh, first time we actually uh, I think it's worked really well. Um, it's been a breath of fresh air from this side of the table anyway. And so I hope it hasn't been too stressful for, uh, for you two. Um, one thing that's really struck me, almost as a background to the conversations that you've been having, is the significance of uh, acts of vocalisation. Um, saying something, announcing something, um, speaking, talking. And I'm not sure we are often focused too much on um, the way that things are said and, and how that forecloses the possibility that other things might have been said but weren't. Uh, and I thought this was all uh, extremely interesting because, of course, how you speak about yourself, if it's the Bank of England, that's designed to change the way that people look at you. Um, but it also helps to change the way that people look at themselves, too. Uh, so the act of, of speaking, of choosing a particular uh, set of vocabulary uh, mm -hmm. to vocalise, um, it's really, really important. But it also tells us something interesting about the identity of the speaker doesn't it? Because different people just have different speaking capacities. Uh, some people feel very comfortable in front of a room and wave their arms around and um, trade on charisma and some people are always nervous when public speaking. And uh, just thinking of the Bank of England, you would never mix up an Andy Cowden speech with a Mervyn King speech, would you? Just because of the way uh, that they say things, not necessarily what it is that they're saying, but what they say. And if you think of Mark Carney now and comparing with Eddie George yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, from 20 years ago, again, the difference is, is quite remarkable. If the Bank of England ever promoted anyone to senior executive uh, positions that weren't white men, then the examples presumably would proliferate further and further. Hmm. Um, so I, I'm really struck, struck by this by the force that you're putting on uh, the act of vocalisation, even if you haven't quite said it in those terms. 
and it's a summer question on the Bank of England stuff. Um, it is maybe this. The cultural shift in central banks recently has been in the direction of communication um, to say things and to be clear in what it is that you're saying, to have a narrative uh, and to present what you see as the world through the framework of that narrative. Um, I wonder, within the current context and what's been going on over the last 10 years, what alternatives might there have been to a discourse of resilience? Was the Bank of England put in a position where even if it wasn't the word resilience, it had to uh, try to be soothing, reassuring, the communication uh, had to point to a future that was going to be better than the immediate past that we've just uh, been through. And the Bank of England is not like a bunch of academics. They can't. They can't portend Armageddon um, uh, comfortably because that's not in the nature of their job. Um, on similar lines, can I, can I just ask very quickly one thing to each of them, because it is about this act of speaking again. Uh, Johnny was saying things that were really interesting, I think, about systemically important institutions and how the, the public discourses, there's a line behind the presumption that systemically important institutions probably shouldn't be allowed to fail. Yeah, too big to fail and systemically yeah, important, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, this means it's very important how you talk about yourself. How, mm. how do you talk about yourself to position yourself as a systemically important institution? I would love to be able to position myself as a systemically important institution. I would get away with all sorts of things <laughs> uh, that I can't get away with otherwise. Um, so what's, what's the practice there that allows somebody to gift themselves uh, such a beneficial character trait. Uh, and to James, one of the very first things you said, which is, has really got me thinking, about the resilient subject being the counterpoint or the counter-image of the traumatic subject. Um, presumably there's a social pressure these days to announce yourself as a resilient subject, that, that you, you get more endorsement from those people that control these narratives of resilience the more that you can show yourself to be resilient. But you can show yourself to be resilient and not feel that in any way at all. That the outer countenance can be one of resilience at the same time that inside you're feeling deeply traumatised. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder whether the, the social pressure to be resilient mm -hmm. might itself be a, a, a precursor of additional trauma. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff to <laughs> Okay, I'll take I'll tell the first question, um, which I thought was a great question, and I think so. Just to kind of give a sort of overview of what what I'm doing in the book is I I, I talk about um, how sort of from I think I say about from about 2003 2004 Bank of England. So before that, the Bank of England says lots and lots of different things about credit derivatives. And it says, okay, these things have good sides and bad sides, and it lists all the different things, and it's quite exhaustive. And it, there's a, it's very broad brush, and it, it lacks a lot of specificity. And then from about 2003, uh, 2004, starts fixing on the complexity of financial instruments. And the Brett Christopher's article, the 2009 one, I can't remember where it is, but it's got complexity in the title. It's a really good one on this. Um, and I think talks to some of the issues that I think you're, you're, you're pushing on. But So the bank is very much interested in complexity. And I argue that this is sort of a crux point between two different cultures that I see in the Bank of England that, that, that are around these misfires. 
I should have said as well that I see discourse and practice as intimately connected and related. And I think something that comes out for me is that I talk about speculating on risk before the crisis and speculating for risk after the crisis. And the way that I do that is I draw on Marika Tehuda's, um, in I think it's, she does it early on in uh, Speculative Security, which is something that I really I really pull, pull, pull on this book massively um, in, in mind. And she says that speculation historically has had two dominant meanings. The one is to, you know, take a punt in unknown circumstances. And I think before the financial crisis, there was this speculation on the ability of financial risk management to solve problems and do this kind of stuff. And then after the crisis, I talk about speculation in the terms of that attempting to see, to visualise, to surmise, those kind of things that Marika talks about. And I bring that in through as I said, you know, these ways of trying to map derivatives, of trying to uh, standardise and code derivatives and lock in the good performativity of them, uh, of the understanding the mobilisation of risk so that you don't get this situation where there's a huge amount of complexity and a huge amount of concentration on places like AIG, for example, or other institutions, or laymen, or whoever. And so I think... For me, that was one part of it. And another part was to say, well, we're also going to consider different types of risk as well and, and try and quantify and see how those things go. So I guess that's what, I, that's what I'm trying to do with the project, is to say that, that that complexity is an important pressure point. And it's a point that actually regulators are trying to do more in terms of that. They are also aware that more innovation will happen there will be ways of getting around the rules. I think everyone knows that. That's how finance works. That's how one of the Bank of England guys did say, that's how Munker... And this is a public thing. This is not an interview, so I'm not... This is not an interview material. But he said... Um, I, I, I use it in... I can't remember which chapter, but it's in the book. And it's about... This is how banks make money through... Uh, regulatory arbitra arbitrage and generally it's complete you know and it is completely legal and that's and that's the point so you know this is this is the game this is the game between um, and Sean Lewin's work talks about that that relationship between regulator and regulated and she'll be writing some things soon I think that that kind of come out and talk about that did you want to interject on that well, on complexity yeah. um, as a reality or a narration. Because you talk about simplicity, don't you, in terms of simplifying and... No. I thought you did. <laughs> I thought you did. Haldane. No, Haldane talks about simplifying. Yeah. But, uh, no, in, in terms of complexity as a, as a discourse versus a reality, uh, I mean, I think resilience is a discourse about complexity that's attempting to, to speak to a particular reality that, you know, from a critical point of view, which I think you have... Um, you might say, well, that's the prior question. And resilience for some, therefore, is about <coughs> acculturating individuals and groups, and, you know, we, have, we were in a resilient university, um, uh, acculturating them to deal with the nature of market life, which is crisis, after crisis, after crisis, and actually when it's not in crisis, it's pretty horrible, which <laughs> is one way of reading it. Um, and so in that sense, I think the narration is important and interesting to follow, because it's, it's constitutive of the way we, we, we deal and, and think about problems. And so in that sense, the divergence between a vision of resilience as complexity modelling, which was very popular at the Bank of England and saw them publishing in Science and Nature and all these wonderful science mm. journals about how fina the financial system is a complex system that's interconnected with 
ecology and medicine and comparing the subprime crisis to the SARS epidemic and, and so on and so forth. I think that's really problematic. <laughs> so I would, I would entirely agree with you, but I would say that if you narrate it differently, you can have alternative politics. And, and that's, that's sort of the broadly, blandly what I'm, I'm seeking to get at in, in, in doing that. Shall I, shall I quickly speak yeah. to the other yeah. two? Um, so, so, Lorenzo, um, yeah, and your view on that was exactly mine coming into this. That was, you know, this is about nudging people away from actually what's normal to the abnormal and what we, how we want people to behave financially. But actually what I think is coming out, and there's a Mark Whitehead's book on neoliberalism that's just come out, um, and they've done a lot of work over, for about a 10-year period looking at how this stuff works. And I, I, at the moment what but people... But it doesn't matter because the time of the book sells, <laughs> sells it anyway. <laughs> at, the moment, at the moment, what I'm getting from, from the people who kind of run these workshops is that it is about actually saying... What makes you happy? So, what make, focusing on the individual and saying and saying that you know people have yeah okay they have a format of saying you know people have particularly cognitive biases to particular behaviours, but there is a sense of bringing the individual back in that I think is quite interesting and did surprise me. And then Matt, um, yeah, so who speaks? That's an act of power. That's an act of authority. Um, you know when when. The bank was trying to convince people that we were coming out of the crisis. They started using the term durable expansion. Um, so not saying booming, as they tend to, you know, do talk about now, but, you know, saying, you know, very limited sort of sort of flip on that. And, yeah, I like, as you said, the way it's delivered, I try and do that in the, in the JC piece about saying, well, you know, probably one of the reasons that Carney came in after King was because of that shift towards communication, I guess, and that they needed someone. And following the Brexit referendum, David Cameron leaves the picture. Um, none of, no one from the Conservative Party comes forward, and Mark Carney does this speech in the governor's room, and it's incredibly statesmanlike, and it's incre- And it was being followed on Twitter like nothing I've really seen since the crisis in terms of everyone hanging on Mark Carney. What's he going to say? How is he going to get us through this this period of political instability? So, authority is the, I guess, is my answer to that. Uh, yes, thank you very much, Matt. That's a very interesting question, mm. and typically goes to the heart of sort of what I'm getting to and what I want to argue, which is that trauma and resilience, they kind of exist as, as correlates that you know promise as much as they, they fail to achieve. To me, I, I, I'm struck by the amount of, amount of times that trauma and resilience are invoked in the same sentence that, that in a sense you know if resilience is attempting to inoculate complex systems against the potential for trauma it seems to always need that possibility of trauma in order to justify its existence I was, I was very struck by Carney after Brexit where the day after he announced that we were at now economic post-traumatic stress disorder as a nation I was like wow what's that and but in the same sentence he was saying but don't worry we've built for resilient systems mm. so I, it, it struck me as quite well, thank you Mark that makes my book make sense <laughs> but it, it, it strikes me that these are these are as you say both fictions that yeah. that um, the capacity for for 
traumatic therapy to re-traumatise, the capacity for demands for traumatic people to do certain forms of therapy to promote resilience can re-traumatise, the, the capacity to be resilient could exist in a traumatic subject quite happily. I, I personally think that you know, uh, the traumatic subjects that I've met who can uh, bury it all and, and you know, occasionally you know, they have to deal with it with, with a, a drink or a painting or something like that, I find that incredibly resilient, but you know, within the lexicon of psychotherapy would be defining quite problematic terms. But the point I'm getting to in terms of finding a resistant way through is, is, uh, is I've, I've been reading a lot of Jack Halberstam on the, on the queer art of failure. And, um, and you know, she, she, she writes very uh, quickly and uh, um, fun, in a fun way, but she says one of, one of the things that we, we need to come to terms with is the fact that, that failure is good. Fail, failure is not a lesson we learn from. We're not all on paths from here to there. I am going to be a successful emotional subject. I'm going to be a f successful financial subject. I am going to be a successful state. You know, failure is for, she describes failure as, a, as an art and a, and, a, and, a, and a way of life. And if I could just quickly pull a quote from, from her work on, uh, on, on Little Miss Sunshine, which I hope you've all seen, but if you haven't, go and watch it. She says, With her porn-obsessed junkie grandfather providing her with the choreography for a pageant routine and a cheerleading squad made up of a gay suicidal uncle, a Nietzsche-reading mute brother, an aspiring but flailing motivational positive speaker father, and an exasperated stay-at-home mum, Olive is destined to fail and fails spectacularly, but while her failure could be a source of misery and humiliation, while it does indeed deliver precisely this, it also leads to a kind of ecstatic exposure of the contradictions of a society obsessed with meaningless competition. And in the book I'm using that to explore the ways in which we might and do celebrate failure through people like Alan Partridge and his, his autobiography about coming to terms with his Tobler own addiction called Bouncing Back, which sold so badly he had to pulp it and he went to see it being pulped. And, I, and so in future work I'm playing around with precisely this idea of finding ways to step outside the ascribed emotive discourses that are so powerful but yet so uh, impersonal sometimes. So I have failed, or we have failed to book the, the, yes. the room for another hour. <laughs> uh, and we, we will fail to have another round of questions but being resilient subjects, we can develop positive attitudes, not despite, but because of failure, and we get to varsity together. Please give them a round of applause. Thanks for coming. <laughs>